Well, good evening, everyone. This is, uh, we want to welcome you to Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. Now, this show is live, and so we're going to be expecting some of your calls, all right? And that number is 888-995-5552. Again, that's 888-995-KKLA. And um, our, uh, show, uh, our, our show topic for this evening is faith and politics. That's what we're going to be uh, talking about. I know it's it, uh, potentially an explosive topic, but uh, we're going to be civil tonight, right, Jacob? We will try. <laughs> we'll try our best. And um, joining me in the studio, I mean, I have a special guest, which uh, I will introduce in just a few minutes, but uh, I always want to check in with Jacob and see how he's doing and maybe give us a, a ministry update. Jacob, how are you doing? Doing very good, Harry. Uh, it's a joy to be here in the studio again. God's been good and seeing what he's doing in the midst of all the chaos and confusion that we are seeing around us. And that's amazing. And it's good to be renewing our faith in the Lord and moving ahead. So with Heritage Council, as you know, I've been traveling a little bit recently. Yeah. I went up to Idaho uh, for, uh, for a conference up there. Had a wonderful time seeing how God is uh, moving, even in Idaho, and uh, seeing the boldness that ch the church has demonstrated there over this time. Uh, that's been amazing. And I'm sure we'll be, we're going to be talking more about that in a minute. But yeah, just want yeah, to give you Yeah, I'm idea. very interested in that story. <laughs> You've got some contacts there. And I know you did some uh, ministering with uh, college presidents, college profs. That's awesome. Can't wait to hear that. And um, I want to introduce everybody to our special guest. His name is Logan. And he's joining us uh, via the telephone. So, Logan, uh, I hope you can hear me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, you're coming through uh, pretty clear. Yeah, uh, yes. I'm a graduate from, from Talbot. I graduated last year, uh, last spring, so it's very fortunate given our current circumstances. Uh, I've done some work at Sacramento State, some work at Oxford, um, where Jacob was fortunate to be as well. Uh, I did some work at the John Jay Institute. And then recently I came into contact with Jacob through some of our uh, joint projects with Equal Justice and uh, a little little bit of our petition work at, at Biola University as well. Ah, that's great. Thanks, Logan. Appreciate it. I know this was so last minute, and uh, we are so uh, grateful that you can make it. You can join us. All right. Yeah, so, no worries. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, before we get to our topic, I just wanted to remind our listeners that we are a listener-supported ministry. And so your financial support and prayers uh, is welcomed. We are uh, all volunteer. Like I said, we're organized under the IRS 501c3, uh, 501c3, yeah, uh, which means all your generous gifts to us are tax-deductible, and it goes directly to pay for our costs. I wish that we could be paid, huh, Jacob? Uh, but <laughs> it's a labor of love. Yeah. Um, so anyways... Uh, the work must go on. That's right. That's right. All right. So our topic is, I don't know why we uh, settled on this, faith and politics. I know potentially it's, uh, it's, it's an explosive topic nowadays, especially during this um, election cycle. And uh, it seems like more than ever, people, especially Americans, are just divided or yeah. polarized over 
issues. It's, I mean, it's ridiculous. Sometimes the memes you see, you just, you know, you just say something and you expect uh, pushback. I think it's also because we've been conditioned in that manner that we had to keep our religion and faith and uh, religion and uh, politics private. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's why we find it very difficult and it's now dividing us because we have kind of uh, adopted that as uh, a given. Yeah. Whereas those are two things we must talk about. Yeah, I know. Uh, Josh, one of the uh, engineers here in the studio said, uh, reminded me that uh, a, f- a, f- a famous popular aphorism is like, there are two things you don't talk about at the dinner table, faith mm-hmm. and politics. And I know that's a, a standard uh, saying, and yet I think that has brought a lot of harm to us. Uh, and, uh, and we're seeing that right now we, because we don't know how to speak in those terms. We don't know the issues. We don't know how to share things civilly. Uh, we don't know rhetoric. We don't know, you know, even logic. And so it ends up being a screaming match. Yeah. And I think we we are failing to recognize that worldviews do inform our public behavior. And we need to be asking as to why are we behaving the way we are now. Uh, That's right. With regards to both faith and politics. Yeah. But I I just want to set this show up for uh, the two of you, Logan and Jacob. Uh, But it's no secret, and I think um, if— we're alive today, and uh, if you turn on the TV, if you turn on your phone, yeah, anywhere you look, it seems like there's always some hot-button issues. And um, obviously, we've been in uh, this COVID crisis for the past six months now. Hmm. And we've been—a uh, lot of states are still on lockdown or uh, some form of lockdown. Uh, here in California, you you know, you can't really congregate— um, unless you're wearing masks. Uh, you still need to be six feet apart. Uh, sh- uh, and, and really, that's um, moved over into the churches. Now, in the beginning, right, uh, when all of this happened, and you and I were talking about this this afternoon, Jacob, because we didn't know anything about the pandemic. It was so new. Hmm. And I don't think any of us really alive today had gone through a real pandemic, we were all fearful, no doubt, uh, and we were thankful to um, all of the public service announcements, yeah. <laughs> and we stayed home, uh, and I, I still remember that vividly, and the numbers uh, they were telling us would be, you know, 2.2 million by September would be dead, you know, the, those kinds of numbers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I, I remember personally, I've been watching those numbers, but anyways, um, uh, oh, there, there was that even that the fifteen, the two weeks or the fifteen days to flatten the curve thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we were all behind that. And we were all cheering our leaders. Yeah, we're going to do this, uh, and yeah, we did flatten the curve. But anyways, uh, weeks after that, right? Uh, when those numbers and thank God that it did not materialize, we're thankful for that. Well, people began to wonder, including myself, you know. Is the um, the measures, the drastic measures, were they warranted hmm. uh, given what we know now, weeks later? Well, anyways, uh, th- then, you know, on social media, you can see all the different reactions, all the different reasonings behind it, uh, behind people's 
modified behavior now, you know, do we wear a mask, not wear a mask. But, but it all came, all right, and here's one of the reasons why we're tackling this issue tonight, is it became a little strange when our leaders talked about essential hmm. things, essential organizations, essential businesses, and strangely enough, the church was not part of what was essential. And uh, it took a while before Christians, Christian leaders reacted to that. And I think we were, uh, and I include myself in there, we were being tolerant, um, no doubt. You know, we didn't say anything until it became a little bit obvious that uh, I think they were really exclusively singling churches out. And, and when did that happen, at least for me in my own observation? Well, when... It seemed like the not-so-peaceful protests were allowed to go on and even encouraged. And then you have churches, a similar form of gathering, but obviously way peaceful. Mm. (laughs) But somehow that wasn't allowed. So that became really just obvious that something else was going on. Yeah. So, which— And there are churches uh, now kind of awakening— to this fact and reacting. So I can actually share about what I experienced recently. And yeah, please do. Yeah, uh, and um, as, as you mentioned uh, a while ago that uh, I went to Idaho, uh, met with some people there, connected with them. And one of the persons I connected with was Gabriel Rent. Uh, he is the co-founder of Cross Politic. Uh, it's a podcast uh, show that they do, and uh, I interviewed him last week. And uh, just two days ago, on 24th, uh, I heard that he got arrested. So what really happened was um, Christchurch— And this is all on uh, YouTube. This is all on YouTube. Yeah, it's getting viral now. Yeah, it's on Facebook. uh, And if you go and check CrossPolitik, you can actually follow what's going on. So uh, this—what happened was actually Christchurch had organized something called uh, Psalm Sing in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, And they were going to sing three songs and a a doxology and then leave the place. Um, And so they were closer to about 300 people. And of that, um, three people were arrested and two were cited. Uh, They were there not breaking any laws. They had legal rights in terms of like constitutional right to gather and to profess their faith. Uh, uh, the reason why they took this step to actually go out and do this peaceful pr- um, protest is because uh, the city council had just extended their masking mandate into January. Uh-huh. And this was despite the fact that this county, particular county, Leto County, had zero hospitalization and zero death. Right? Yeah. And the other factor was that just a week ago, the, the, the mayor of that county, that's... Uh, uh, he was uh, presiding over a wedding, wearing no mask. There were over 50 people there who were not wearing masks. So the church said, no, this, this doesn't look like um, it is being enforced everywhere. This is not being, it's more hypocritical on the side of sure. uh, the mayor. The mayor. Um, so they said, no, we need to go out peacefully, orderly, uh, and doing what needs to be done, uh, doing it lawfully. And when they did that, uh, uh, Gabriel Wrench was one of the persons who got arrested because he was uh, standing close to uh, someone who was not from his family. Okay. And so it's going viral. But the church has taken a stance. That, the, the point is that the church is recognizing that there's a need for them to be out there and 
for people to re- really understand that worship is something that is essential mm-hmm. for the church. Right, right. Uh, it's not something that we, uh, we church doesn't exist without worship. Right, right. So, um, yeah, there are churches who are awakening to what's happening uh, around them, uh, decisions being made. Some sometimes they are partial towards yeah. a certain group. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely going to be more awakening, I believe, with churches yeah. around the nation. So. Hey, Logan, you've heard of that, right? Uh, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on that issue, on that particular yeah. uh, event at Moscow, Idaho. Yeah, uh, unlike Jacob, I haven't met Gabriel Wrench. I became aware of his work, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that he was uh, brought on to the Equal Justice podcast, and we had a conversation with him about church and politics and where he stood on those issues and how Christians could come to understand the different spheres of influence. Um, he, uh, being Gabriel Wrench, uh, relied on Abraham Kuyper's work to kind of explicate um, sort of a, a middle ground between the faith and politics, as you talked about at the beginning. Um, and I, I do want to make two quick comments, just something that you said at the beginning, and that's the, the conflict between what seems to be the political and yeah. the, the religious. Mm-hmm. And the second thing about um, being essential and being non-essential, I think that's, those are two very important conversations to have, to have. The first one, though, is that we Christians will often define politics in terms of the world. So you, you hear this in the New Testament where Jesus, you know, uh, if my uh, kingdom was of this world, my, my uh, servants would fight or um, be of the world, but not, or be part of the world, but not of the world. And so they will often conflate politics with the world. And so there's sometimes a subliminal, I guess, theological belief that being part of politics is, is being part of the world. And I think the pushback is, it's not to say that you should be ignorant of politics. And I wrote an article for the American Mind uh, at the beginning of this COVID and said, it, it's going to go one path. It's going to be hyper-political because no one's looking at the politics. They're looking at, let's not do politics. Let's not engage with how intense it's going to be. And somehow down the line, if we just believe in science, it won't be political. Hmm. And in fact, it's turned the exact opposite. It's been highly political. And if you go back to the article that I wrote, I named some of the policies that both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats, would try to push. They'll use the virus to kind of cap on some of the policies that they couldn't get through Congress during, you know, prior to, to the uh, virus. The second thing, though, is, is, is the essential part, and I think this gets down to the heart of the Christian message, whether or not you're going to be convinced on the political um, topic, if you're going to go out and engage in politics as a Christian or not. What was so profound and so fascinating, uh, what Gabriel Wren said before he was arrested, was it seems that somewhere down the line, Christians believe that Christianity was no longer essential. And it becomes very hard. I was having a conversation with some of my high school students. You know, I said, what do you, what do you want part of a church? Like, what would be so important for you? He says, well, I want something that's meaningful and important. And it, it struck me at the moment. That's where I got the text from Jacob saying, hey, Gabriel just got arrested. And I thought, how many Christians want to tell high school students, you know what, Christianity is really important. But when it comes down to being essential in the government world, we're not going to touch that. It's mm-hmm. not essential. It's not anything we're going to get our hands dirty in. We're not going to fight for it. Grocery store, essential. Religion, not essential. I think that's where we really get to the heart of the matter, though, is this Gabriel Wrench issue. Yeah. Uh, let me, uh, I'm playing, I told Jacob I'd be playing devil's advocate here. So um, what do you say uh, in this particular instance where 
there's some activism, right, that's being enforced here by the church. But what what if on the other side they're saying, hey, k- k- let's be a little bit more tolerant, let's be a little bit more loving here, because in fact the state has not said that you cannot worship or that Christianity is banned. Um, they're not saying anything like that. So for now, why don't we just kind of be tolerant? Like, yeah, we don't prefer it, but you know, we're flexible this way and might be a better witness. Uh, what, what would you say to that? I, I know a few weeks ago, John Noyes and I had this discussion, and uh, yeah, that was kind of a fun thing to think about. What, what are you guys' thoughts on that? Maybe, Jacob, let's start with you. Uh, I think when it comes to making a decision with regards to meeting in churches, and, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that all churches are at a place where Christ churches. Uh, they've been prepared for this time. They were prepared for a moment to react to, uh, to know how to react to a situation like this. Not all churches are there. So I think it does come back to the churches and what decision their leadership are making in regards to knowing where they are, whether they even, they even have a facility to gather together. Um, so the position that I take one is of uh, based on your church's situation in this regard, it is important for the leadership to understand where we are as a culture and uh, informing their congregants about that. And it is necessary that the congregant stands with the leadership. And that's not ha- that doesn't happen in a day. It happens, it takes time. And I believe uh, churches aren't there. So the, the wise approach in that would be one, where we take an incrementalist approach, where we open our churches, uh, orienting it towards the um, complete, reopening of the churches. It should be directed towards that, not the other way, given the facts that we have in front of us um, with regards to what's happening with the COVID situation. That's one way. And I think churches must have the freedom to decide, uh, make mature decisions in terms of uh, who wants to wear and who doesn't want to wear. Um, There had never been a time in history where we have quarantined healthy people. Uh, There is something about doing that in a time like this. Uh, so these are some of the questions that the, the elders at the church need to be d- talking to their congregants about, preparing them for situations like this, and this is uh, an opportune time to do that. Yeah. How about you, Logan? What are your thoughts on that, uh, my hypothetical devil's advocate uh, oh, I mean, I, scenario? <laughs> I've seen this all over Facebook. No, this, this devil advocate question is, is all over Facebook and is just as prevalent within the church, people saying, you know, uh, when they saw the article saying, isn't this, were they being too provocative? You know, couldn't you be, as you said, a better witness if you weren't so provocative, uh, showed love to your neighbor, wore your mask, um, you don't want them sick. You've heard this for almost five months or so. Um, And we'll probably hear it for the next three or four months. There are are two considerations. The the practical consideration and then the, the in principle consideration. The practical consideration is you have the congregation, and this is what Jacob was talking about, is you know, are congregations able to respond? What's the level of maturity? What kind of leadership do they have? Because some, there are some churches that just can't be that kind of social life. And it's nothing to say necessarily against them. They're just, they don't have the level of maturity or the level of convictions that, that are needed to do that kind of thing. Now, then you have the in-principle consideration. This is where I think Gabriel Wrench and his church was on point. The church has taken a stand for thousands of years that human beings are fundamentally equal, right? They're all created in the image of God. And so one person and another person have to treat each other in certain ways because 
they're fundamentally equal. It doesn't matter what kind of experience you have. It doesn't matter what kind of class you're part of. It doesn't matter what position you hold. You're essentially equal with another human being. And so there are certain things that despite any of those things, you can't do. One of those things is you can't treat people arbitrarily different. And this is where Gabriel Wrench went, and this is where Jacob brought out with the mayor's passing certain ordinances or certain orders, sorry, and is saying, we're going to wear masks, here are the fines, but then I'm not going to do that, right? So it becomes a theological and principle question of saying, wait a minute, if you think people are fundamentally equal, he doesn't have that right to do that to another person or another group of people. You don't get to pick who, this, particularly this wedding, doesn't have to obey, or maybe... Um, there, there's been a, quite a few situations where people are losing their jobs, but the politicians are getting paid, right? How can you ask someone to cut their pay, but then not cut your own? So there becomes yeah. an in-principle question of, are you treating people equally? And this is where I think Gabriel Wrench, and I think the church is, in his line, are taking the appropriate response and saying, you can't treat people fundamentally different because, in fact, we're fundamentally equal. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. And uh, I think one of the things that has uh, churches we need to be thinking is uh, going forward is that uh, can we afford to see everything all aspects of our life all good things in our life through the lens of just one thing uh, and that's what happened a few months ago what we started seeing everything uh, and we had complete lockdown because we started seeing everything through the lens of COVID yeah. uh, and in doing that we actually missed out on the good that is there in, in doing work gathering um, social relationships, right? Community. And can we afford to be missing out on those good yeah. uh, is, is a question in front of us, and we should be prepared to answer that. And I'm also wondering if maybe as a culture here, are we slowly getting socialized into thinking that um, uh, a viable option for church is literally just watching a video and sitting on the couch and, and then call it church, and that's it. And uh, it's almost like paying penance, you know, mm-hmm. or or doing the time, uh, as they say it, right? And then, uh, but there's real, real no fellowship. Uh, they're not exercising their gifts. Uh, they're not relating to human beings. Yeah, uh, they're just passively watching mm-hmm. someone talk well, about you know things. Prior to COVID, we had satellite churches, right? And at that time, no one questioned it because there was still this aspect of gathering. People would gather together and then uh, uh, watch it. So what has happened is that the dangers of virtual church is like we have taken this smorgasbord approach to church. Now I can pick and choose yeah. what church to attend, you know, which channel to go to and watch. The other is we, there's a loss of full sensory experience of worship. We are embodied beings. We are called to actually worship the Lord with all our being, right, together. Uh, and uh, there is this aspect of uh, lack of edification. First Corinthians fourteen twenty six talks about it. It happens in the context of brethren coming together as a body. And I, so there is there's so much to miss out on if we're just comfortable sitting at home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, at our own convenience, yeah. watching the wor- worship. Yeah. All right, I, I just want to let our viewers know, again, this is live, and uh, we invite your comments and your questions. The number to call is 888-995-5552. Again, that's 888-995-KKLA. Um, and so our topic for this evening is faith and politics. So 
again, it's always good to define our terms, right? Yeah. What what exactly are we talking about? I'm going to assume we all know that this is a Christian talk show, uh, and so this is Christianity that we're talking about. But what is politics? How would you define politics? Jacob. Oh, you want me to go? Yeah, yeah, Harry, go for it. Harry, I'm going to quote you. Uh, I remember this was about <laughs> seven or eight years ago. Uh, I was new here in apologetics.com, and we had this very question in front of us, what is politics? And you said something that I believe is so much biblical and so much true and so much simple. <laughs> it's applied ethics. <laughs> That's what politics is. Uh, you know, Being in one's jurisdiction, it's governance, Right. Uh, governance, but uh, 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 so 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 uh, as Christians, right? We are called to apply ethics in our family, in our church. Uh, my question is, why is it that we actually stop there? Aren't we called to actually apply ethics with our neighbor as well when we want to love them, as Christ calls us to, right? So uh, politics for me, it's applied ethics. Yeah, no, I like that, and and, and so. When I, I don't know what inspired me to say that, but uh, it's simple. Uh, you can easily remember it. And, and, and really, it's about doing uh, within uh, a, a body of people. Yeah. It's, it, you're not doing it by yourself or to yourself. It's, it's doing and living in community. Uh, and it and, cannot be disconnected with faith. And the way I define faith is that being and doing all that Christ has commanded us to do, being his disciple. And that connects with the fact that just like John the Baptist, if you look at John the Baptist, what did he do? He brought a biblical ethic to a pagan king yeah. and got beheaded for that. <laughs> 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 right. I, I know we're coming up on a break pretty soon, so um, I will transition smoothly, hopefully, uh, when the music starts to kick in. And again, you have been listening to Apologetics.com and catch us on the other side. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has ideas about God. Unfortunately, many people hold false ideas about Him. And these ideas have consequences. Some false ideas have led people to worship a God of their own making, while others have led people to reject God altogether. This year, we've devoted an entire conference to answering the most common false ideas about God. Is God anti-gay? Is God good? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are just a few of the topics we'll be addressing. The only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. We are at war. It's not a war of bombs and bayonets. It's not a war against flesh and blood. In fact, it's not a physical war at all. It's a spiritual war. That's why Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's primary scheme is deception. He wants us to believe false ideas about God. And the only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. Simply put, we combat deception with truth. It's unfathomable to imagine sending young men and women off to fight a physical war without proper training. Yet, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we do this all the time. The vast majority of our students are simply not prepared for the spiritual battle that awaits them. 
At this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences, we're training students to counter the lies of the enemy. Lies like God does not exist, God is anti-gay, Muslims and Christians worship the same God are just a few of the false ideas we'll be addressing. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. All right, well, welcome back to the second half hour of the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm Harry Edwards, um, the host for this evening, and joining me in the studio is Jacob Daniel and my new friend, Logan Zapieri. Did I uh, pronounce your name right, Zapieri? Yeah, very close. Okay, <laughs> close enough. All right, well, uh, the thing that we've been talking about is uh, the intersection of faith and politics, all right? And I know it, potentially a very explosive topic nowadays. And uh, we, we were, uh, just before we uh, went to break, we attempted to define politics. So I'm going to ask you, Logan, what um, your definition is. How would you define politics? Uh, I think I think Jacob was right in part when he said that politics can be defined in terms of applied ethics. I think I would extend that definition to include uh, the, the partnering of individuals to form some sort of social structure. If it's a, a political, if it's a, like a political institution, a political party, if it's a church, if it's um, to have a family, that's going to be a social mm. structure. Some, you know family politics, as we could say, or church politics, as we can say, um, all that would imply some sort of partnering up with another individual to do something that maybe you could not have done by your own, by yourself. Ethics will be involved in that. Obviously, you want to pair up with people ethically and morally, but I think there is a social dynamic that is that, that, that's at the core of being political. Yeah, I like that. And, and, and it, it connects with the very structure of governance that we see throughout the Scripture. You know, there are three structures of government, the family, the church, and the state, right? And there is a mandate and a jurisdiction described in the scripture very clearly with regards to um, the state. Romans 13 is very clear what the jurisdiction of um, authorities are that yeah. is established by God. And Yeah. Yeah, I was even reading, uh, doing some reading in the Gospel of Mark, and it's interesting to get reminded 
that, um, you know, while Jesus was traveling and, you know, he got his disciples and he's talking about this new kingdom. Uh, and, and a lot of it, obviously, is about him, you know, and, and his deity. Um, and, and then you come to Mark 10, and he's talking about the family all of a sudden. Hmm. You know, it's, it seems like, uh, well, it's, it's divorce, actually, but he's talking about family there. And uh, I thought it was fascinating. All of that in the background of the new kingdom. So, yeah, yeah. all right, let's, let's, let's do this. You mentioned the three spheres of uh, authorities, right? The family, uh, you've got the state. And then you've got the church. Church, yeah. Um, so practically, how do we see that? Uh, in, in fact, I'm g- I'm going to just throw this question out to you guys. And you had this question beforehand, but uh, I'm going to just read my question so it's it's clear here. W- what are current evangelical attitudes, practices, and behaviors that play out when confronted with political matters? Um, and I, I said that this is obviously more acute during uh, election cycles. Yeah. I think there are two extremes that I see um, quite often. One is the whole attitude of isolationism, where we need to completely isolate ourselves, not engage in politics at all, uh, submit without questioning at all times, in all cases. The other is where we um, mix religion or faith and politics so much that there is no way to distinguish it. It becomes civil religion. And I think I see both. And one thing common between both is this, too much of emotionalism. Mm. We engage, we, uh, we basically attack the individuals, but never confront the ideas. We never engage with. So what we need to be careful with is that we need to understand as Christians is this. While we are aware of secular liberalism, there is something called secularized conservatism as well. You know, We need to learn to avoid, let people... Uh, basically use Christianity for the task of making citizens for the sake of the state. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to make good citizens for the sake of God and his kingdom. We are good citizens because we are called to be good citizens. We are called to submit to the authorities when they limit themselves within the jurisdiction that God has established. One of the questions that come is that people say that Christ said, you know, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to God. And they would say that keep uh, Jesus out of Caesar's business. But they forget that one of the discussions that doesn't happen is that Caesar belongs to Christ. Right. Romans 13 is very clear. It is God who establishes authority. It It is he who sets their jurisdiction, one of which is that he's given them the sword. Right? They, he's given them the jurisdiction of justice. And I think it doesn't mean that uh, it, it, it requires believers and people to completely uh, give into or allegiance to them, even when they break and go beyond the jurisdiction that God has set. No, even Caesar belongs to God. Right. And that's something we should be thinking about as well. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Logan, do you have thoughts on that? The, how, how the three spheres of uh, governance kind of... Uh, intersect each other? Yeah, I mean, I think what what we've been seeing for the past uh, five, ten years or so, I think is the Church conceding too much ground on all three of these issues. Um, the Church historically has been staunch defenders of all three. I mean, if, if you look at Church history, 
the debate of what constitutes state power and what constitutes church power is the topic of the Protestant Catholic up into the Protestant Catholic Reformation. You know how much you know how much are political leaders involved? Does the Pope ordain kings? Are the kings on their own? Total? How does this all work? We kind of secluded ourselves back into kind of just keep it private. Then you had the church by itself, you know, kind of falling in, in suit with the, the state. The state can kind of run the show. We'll kind of run behind the curtain. Maybe sometimes we'll peek out once in a while if there's a hot button. Obviously, moral question. But even so, for example, with the gay marriage debate, it was very much, well, yeah, you can have your own marriage in your own home, and then we're going to pass these policies because this is what the state does. And so then we gave ground up on the, on the family. And I think what, what we're seeing played out now is the question, how has the church lost too much? And now is the church trying to regain all those lost battles, it, which, which makes it now so contentious. Now every policy is, is this the last straw before the church is just out of the picture mm. on family or on, you know, can we meet in church and how we practice in this uh, state when uh, the, the new uh, uh, Amy Barrett mm-hmm. question of Catholicism is going to be raised in the Senate. Can she be a proper SCOTUS, right? Serve under SCOTUS or serve uh, as a Supreme Court, sorry, justice. Mm. Um, will that will that deviate the the Supreme Court? You know, can it? Can we have a you know unpartisan, you know, uncontroversial, non-sectarian Catholic? What it again? Are we going to regulate religion back to being private? And this is, you know, just been devastating to the church. Yeah, and I think and, it's a mi- misnomer that w- when we think that um, I believe all political systems are theocratic in nature. Mm-hmm. It depends what kind of God you're serving. Right? Ultimately. Uh, ultimately. Huh? Yeah. 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 Uh, if you read so- Romans 13, it's very clear uh, from a Christian perspective, it is God who establishes authority and the jurisdiction of uh, people who serve uh, in civil authority. Uh, so when it comes to Keeping God out of the picture, we establish someone else in his place. Uh, and I believe one of the th- things that we have done in our culture, something that we should be very careful about when we talk about, definitely we do understand that there is no compulsion for people to, when it comes to um, uh, coming to Christ, right? They, uh, in the sense that they're not coerced or forced into conversion. But there's something that when we talk about religious liberty, what we are saying is ultimately that all worldviews are on plain ground, are equal. So what we have done in culture, in politics, is that we have pushed this religion of agnosticism. where Neutrality. We, we, neutrality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't exist. Paul is very clear. Either you serve the creator or the creation. And that's very much evident in our political poli- different policies we make. Right. Either we are serving the creator or the creation. Uh, so we have to actually ask this. Are we, by having these kind of uh, engagement, when we are all about building bridges, where we're usually seeing most of people from our camp moving on to the other side when we build bridges, um, have we actually taken in Trojan horses where we are establishing a generic deity in our culture, right? We need to be careful about that. And be, uh, and so what, what is necessary is that Christians have to recognize that they must have a voice in the culture, they must have a, a position in the culture whereby they would be, their voices will be prophetic. They'll, they will have a prophetic witness. Doesn't mean that that prophetic witness will have acceptance, full acceptance in the culture. No, 
there will be persecution. As I said, when you bring biblical ethics before a pagan king, you might get beheaded for that. Sure. That's going to happen, but doesn't mean that we are, we are not called to uh, apply that ethics, apply that framework in, in the culture within which we live. So let me, can yeah. I jump in real quick? Of course, yeah. Um, I think when, there's been a, a, a huge misnomer on this question of religious neutrality. And I think Jacob hits it a little bit by saying, ultimately, it's not neutral. I think the, the difficulty, though, and there's a lot of um, you know, people like David French, um, Jonah Goldberg, these individuals who are arguing for put, you know, religious neutrality, moral neutrality in sure. the in the uh, public space. And at the front, there's something about that that we all like. And that's something like, I don't get to tell Jacob what he gets to do in his home. We we like that idea of the world. But what we forget is that the only way that idea of the world works is if we already have the presupposition that because we're fundamentally equal, hmm. I don't get to choose what Jacob gets to do. This also applies to uh, religious enlightenment. This is why Christians, by and large, don't believe you get to force other people to become Christians, because they say, while we want to say we have the gospel and the truth, because we're fundamentally equal, we don't get to just force people to just accept whatever it is that we may come. Now, there is also this, this sin doctrine that we have, which is we might have it wrong in certain parts and in certain details, but the, the fundamental, I guess, commitment on this entire neutrality is disrespect of persons which is grounded in the fact that we're fundamentally equal, which is a thoroughly Christian view. I mean, go into East Asian cultures, go into Eastern cultures, go into African cultures. By and large, you don't get the fundamental equality of individuals. That's been the exception of mankind. Everyone is in our equal playing field. That's the commitment that Christianity pushed through and was very novel. Yeah. Uh, you're right. And this very thought that we all are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights, um, um, which is... Uh, as the founders say, it's self-evident, but I would argue that um, if it was self-evident, it would be actually evident in other cultures too. Uh, so I would, uh, they were definitely borrowing it from the scriptures ultimately. And this very notion has not just impacted the Western world and how we conduct our lives here, but also rest of the world. Uh, Post-World War II, if we see the world adopted this very notion of dignity within their constitution, from here west. And I think this is something to be fi- uh, that we need to be fight- fighting for, defending and preserving something that uh, Christianity has offered to the world. Yeah, amen to that. Hey, I'm curious, guys. Um, how about, uh, I, I want to move to this idea that politics might be uh, a necessary evil, but I'm not quite sure personally if I actually believe that because... There might be, as we've defined politics, there are certain goods that we want to achieve through politics. So um, would you guys agree with that statement that uh, politics is a necessary evil? Or uh, are there redeeming values to politics? And, and perhaps if we cast a new vision for, for, for that, then maybe Christians might embrace the whole project of politics. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Go ahead, Logan. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I would, I would disagree. I think Augustine had it, or Augustine, if you're Catholic, um, got it right when he said war is a necessary evil. Um, I don't think politics is. I think if we took Jacob's definition that it's applied ethics, if we even um, kind of fuse it with my definitions as a, as a social arrangement of some sort to to 
um, do things that we may otherwise not have done. You, you can't understand it as a necessary evil in the same way that you can understand something like war as a necessary evil to combat the evils of the world. Hmm. Right in the beginning with Genesis, you have kind of the command to be fruitful and multiply, yeah. multiply and to subdue the earth. And to just give a practical application that how politics, I think, is an extension of that command. And I know some people are going to have disagreements on this. I've had many disagreements with, with my pastor's friends on this. Um, but look at it with the, the whole environmental debate happening in California. It really comes down to two views. You have the protectionist view, which is something like nature should take care of itself. Don't touch it. And then you have what I would want to call the conservationist view, which is, sure, nature by and large can get on on its own. But mankind is in a particular situation that it can tend to the garden, so to speak. And I think political institutions, if it's tending actually our nature, if it's tending and trying to create structures that benefit the family, if it's um, bringing education, uh, we uh, on Equal Justice, we interviewed Dr. Corey Miller, and he talked about how it's very interesting that the very first institutions of higher education were started in the Christian West. You know, Christians have been very political because, in part, it's extending this notion of subduing the earth and coming into knowledge of the natural world and how it functions and how it can function better and where where's our place in helping nature flourish. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's good. I yeah, agree. Um, um, that was the point I was coming to as well. Um, governance is part of God's initial plan for mankind. You know, the very aspect of um, taking responsibility, using rationality in defining things, identifying things, uh, and ordering things uh, for flourishing. Uh, you know, uh, so I think it, it, if not a necessary evil, it's definitely a necessary good, yeah. one that we can't live without. Yeah. And yet it's it's a stark, uh, it, it's just amazing how uh, Christians don't get into it. Uh, again, the whole aphorism of, you know, don't talk about religion and, poli- uh, and politics at the dinner table. Uh, one of the worst advices ever. But um, what I was going to say is uh, e- even my, my reading of Genesis, even more important than our rational minds being kind of like um, what is meant by the Imago Dei. I'd actually say uh, governance is closer to the Imago Dei than rationalism, at least for the way I think. And, and in that context, it certainly applies, you know. So, yeah, so the, the, the mandate was given to us even back in the garden. Hey, I'm really curious about this one. Um, this is one of those hot-button topics, the whole idea of wasting your vote. Uh, I'm curious, what, what do you guys think about that? So in a two-party system, in this case, we've got the Republicans and the Democrats. You've got the main guy for each one. But because we've got extensive freedoms here, you can literally write any person's name on the ballot, right? Now... Again, given our two-party system, anybody you write, uh, unless you're a billionaire, you're campaigning for someone, uh, you're sure to lo- to lose. I mean, that vote is just wasted in, in a sense. So I know it sounds harsh for those who are who think that way uh, or who, who plan to vote that way, but I, I just can't get around to it. I, I think really it is a waste. But I, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, some, of, some of the arguments I've heard from people I respect is they got to go uh, with their conscience. And 
and the effects of which is not up to them, but they're going to vote their conscience. So literally, they want somebody in office, and they're going to vote that person in by writing their name on the ballot. But uh, I don't think historically any uh, third party has ever won or even come close to anything. Um, Um, So I'm curious, what, what are you guys' thoughts on that? And then the corollary to that, right, is, well, then, since we know one of the two will win, uh, you have to. Uh, wisdom tells us that w- that one of them will win, and so why not uh, join the uh, activity or or, or the uh, the intentionality of having that person win? That you might actually uh, think it's the lesser of the two evils ought to win. So you 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 pick that. You do all you can to support that person. So I'm curious, yeah. what are you guys' thoughts on that? I'm I'm sure Logan will have much to say on this one, but let me just uh, say just one point on this. Whoever is thinking in this regard, regardless of who, what candidate they're going to vote for, when the, uh, they need to check their premise. Is their premise that they're going to find a perfect candidate? That never happens. If if I'm going to start with that kind of idea, uh, it, then the question comes: Am I seeking salvation through politics or a candidate who is going to come in power? Ultimately, um, so so uh, 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 what I would say, given that there are two candidates in front of you and you know that either one of them are going to win, no one is perfect. Um, I think then it comes down to this. Personally, I believe that you can't let someone else decide for you. Ultimately, that's what's going to happen. Uh, so wisdom would call you to actually judge the situation and these candidates, knowing the fact that there is no perfect candidate, um, uh, but definitely there are good policies, there are good worldviews that guides individuals, and on the basis of that, that which not will not go against your conscience, and you can um, uh, promote goodness, truth, and beauty uh, through uh, the very act of voting. Right, even when some laws come about or some rules are made, and when candidates act in certain manner, uh, I think that's a better route. I personally believe than going uh, taking a middle ground. Logan, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, when when I got your some, some of your questions, this is one of the ones that you wrote down. I was trying to think of a good answer for some time, and I think the first thing that came to mind is that we we very much undervalue. Uh, the role of an individual's conscience. So I think anything I'm about to say after this needs to be in light of this. I think ultimately one's conscience has to play a massively deciding role in in which way you end up voting, if it's Democrat, if it's Republican, if it's third party. And I don't mean that as a um, how you feel in the moment, but an an honest, you know, honest to goodness self-reflection on what you think is the tipping point. Because the question really comes down, I think, to this. Do you leave a political party or do you try to reform that political party? Now, it has been done in the past with, for example, the conservatives reforming the Republican Party. Nowadays, it's almost synonymous to refer to someone as conservative or Republican, though they don't know if there's there's a particular ideological belief of a conservative versus, say, a libertarian, but they both tend to vote Republican. So the first one is you have to be able to figure out what's the tipping point for you. And this is not just politics. Uh, what, when was the tipping point for the Protestants to leave the Catholic Church? That's, that's a hard to say. It's very hard to say this was the day, but it, it did end up happening. It should have been sooner, should have been later. That should be hard to debate. The second consideration, though, is um, 
or, or rather uh, continuing the first one is that you have to be able to reform that party if that's your idea and that can be done or the third one is to vote out vote for third party and i think you do have to again go back to this conscience question um which one is i guess most in line with your conscience but i think there are important considerations i guess this was my second point is that you can't look at a candidate as like hegemonic you know if you vote for donald trump you believe everything you believe because he doesn't represent everything he represents libertarians he represents conservatives he represents neocons he represents a whole slew of people who identify as republican if you vote for biden you're not just voting for everything that biden you know he's not hegemonic with the democratic party look at the democratic party i mean it, it, it's a representation of a of a group of people and this is where it comes down to politics some of it is the ethics of social cohesion you don't always get what you want in your church in your family you're probably sitting around the dinner table thinking I don't agree everything that my dad just said. Does that mean I pick up and leave? Well, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. Where's that dividing line? You have to figure that out. Yeah. And I think in this discussion, one of the things that needs to be interjected, I, I guess, is the very question of who is proximate to maintaining the Constitution that's been given to you. Um, if, if a candidate uh, and their policies and what they stand for and the, what they demonstrate in terms of if it looks like it violates what the constitution allows for uh, that would be a deciding factor as well uh, when it comes to voting because uh, I think with uh, uh, with the nation of America one thing that is unique about America is its constitution the very nature of a republic uh, you know and people need to understand that uh, that it, it, it's it's not a democracy in pure sense uh, it's it's a republic where people submit to the authority of the constitution. So does your president. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, these are hard uh, issues for sure. And uh, I hope that when, when you guys, uh, some of the folks that will listen to the podcast will appreciate some of the, the, the good points you two are bringing up. These are not easy topics, and uh, I'm glad you guys have really thought about it. So... Um, let me uh, let me uh, throw this one to you guys. To what extent are churches uh, beholden to politics? Meaning, uh, as an organization or as a group of believers, is there a place for political activism, or is there a place for uh, addressing political issues from the pulpit, or? you know, holding seminars, workshops, whatever. And, uh, and, and for example, it could be, let's say, even an apologetics event about uh, abortion, you know. Um, and, it, it, and when people hear that word, uh, it's either pro-life, pro-choice, or politics, and, and they for, forget to talk about the theology of it, the science of it, and and, and, and even care for the mother and family and things like that. So I'm curious, what what are you guys' uh, thoughts on that in terms of how church ought to be involved in politics? Uh, and, and make it quick because we got less than two minutes. <laughs> uh, this is just one thing that uh, that connects with uh, our previous discussion that we were having. There's this one thing I would say that though we are hoping that we would get a leader that would lead this nation, it is not at the expense of um, missing out on local authorities. There is much that happens locally. So you need to know who you are actually 
uh, who you're appointing and on local basis. So the very idea of uh, the doctrine of lesser magistrate plays into it, where it's not just the higher authorities and civil magistrates who are taking decisions, but it's also the lesser magistrate who have the authority to basically question the civil authority. So I would say in that regard, church uh, or Christians have a role to be involved in local politics as well in bringing about people who would then uh, keep things in balance. Uh, and uh, yeah, and from there, I think that's how it, ha it, ha it has to be both top down as well as bottom up approach. Yeah. That I okay. Think. Hey, Logan, you had the final word, 30 seconds. Thoughts okay. on that? Um, this, is, this is what I would say. Uh, for the last 10 years, this, as a culture, the three things we've avoided is religion, politics, and sex. And those are the three things that are blowing up in the church. And I think the church churches need to figure out how to talk about those things more naturally from the pulpit in a complex and sincere manner. And if the church refuses to do so, it's just going to get more, more volatile. All right. Thanks, Logan, for that. All right. You've been listening to Apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Thank you to all of our listeners, to my special guests, Logan and Jacob, and to our engineers back there. Our hope is that you've learned something about uh, the intersection between politics and the faith. And uh, we hope to catch you again next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.